Amen and amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. And Craig, thank you for taking that to the back. Thanks. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open your Bibles up, would you please? I'm going to be reading out of John's Gospel here in just a moment. In fact, it will be John chapter 4. I'm going to be reading here in just a moment as we're going to study God's Word together. And as you're finding John 4, I want you to listen because I'm going to be marketing our next sermon series that's going to take place this summer. I, I don't usually market the sermon series, but I want to market this one just a little bit. As you will recall, I mentioned as we started 2017 that all of 2017 I was going to use as the year we would learn to love what God loves and that this would entail various subject matter and we've gone since January, usually month to month, with a new sermon series under the phraseology, I love, and then we'll add something that we're studying because we're loving what God loves. This summer, the month of July and, and probably August, there's going to be nine messages that we're going to be teaching and these nine messages are going to come under the heading, I love my church. You know, God loves the local church. Now, there are lots of great churches. We do not say for one moment that Legacy Church is the only church. It's just like Bilo isn't the only grocery store or Publix or Food Lion. We understand there's lots of great stores, grocery stores that you could go shop in. Uh, there are lots of great churches that will feed you. And that will minister to you. And we recognize that. We're not, we are not the kingdom. We are a part of the kingdom. But when you're called and you're a part of legacy, then you need to love where you are. And we love our church. And so we want to share some things that I think will help you fall in even greater love with your local church. In fact, there's a fancy word by the name of ecclesiology. Now, I understand nobody cares what ecclesiology means probably but me. So I get that. And it actually means the study of church. And, and, and the reason uh, we're doing this is because I'm not sure people understand what church really is supposed to be and all about. We have our preferences and we have ideas as to what church is and as to what church should do. But I'm not sure we've ever really studied the scripture to begin to come to grips with what it is that God says is a local church. I know we have our opinion, but our opinion is secondary to what God has said. And, and so we're going to, I'm going to, I'm just marketing this, so just bear with me. This is going to be real practical, real relevant. It's going to be real helpful. Because we're going to teach on some subjects like why, what is a local church? What is a local church? You know, just because you have believers together and you have a little music and someone may do, do something devotional, is that what a church is all about? Because if that's what a church is all about, then maybe you could just go to a Christian concert and as long as the guy does a devotional, you're good to go. Maybe. What's a local church? Why should we love our local church? What's the vision of the local church? You know, this is a perfect moment for me to be able to share what God has said prophetically to us as well as what he's calling us, I believe, and relaunching us to do. So what's the vision? That's important. How do you catch the vision of your church? How do you participate in it? Catch the DNA of the thing. We're going to talk about allegiance and a culture of allegiance and why that why that's so important i'm going to talk a little bit about government now i realize when i say government i'm not i'm no longer talking about our secular civil government now i'm going to talk about 
the church and how it's governed and how it's given oversight and how God has chosen to do that from the word. We're going to talk about how the church is unstoppable. Isn't that good? The gates of hell cannot prevail against us. I'm just giving you an advertisement. That's worth an amen. The church is unstoppable. We need to recognize also another message, the spirit of division. You know, Satan loves to divide what God wants to multiply. So we need to recognize that. And then lastly, we're going to talk about how order works within a local church. It's the word protocol and order. So all of these things, and I realize they may not be of any interest to you, you think, but when you begin to hear it, I think you're going to be amazed at how it's going to help you understand some things about the church at large, the body of Christ, as well as this particular local church. So I'm excited about that. And we're going to use uh, July and August as we move to September to kind of lay some foundation in that particular area. So you be praying. I hope you're here. I know it's vacation time and we've got people on the road and and uh, that's expected because everybody gets a vacation. But I hope as best as you can that you will be here because we feel like we're going to be downloading some things that are going to be really important in the days ahead. And for those that are on the wagon, we want you to know these things. All right. Enough of the announcement. That was the trailer before the movie. Now we're into the movie. All right. I love the will of God. Everyone together. Let's say it one last time. Ready? I love the will of God. One more time. I love the will of God. And our goal this month has been to help answer questions about God's will and ultimately help you hit the prize of apprehending the will of God for your life. God has a will for your life. He has plans. He has purposes. He has designs for you. And he wants you in it. I want you in it. You'll be most profitable to find and in it. But one of the most elusive things in the kingdom is at times apprehending the will of God. And I want to remind you what we've learned already. All right, I'm going to go through this quickly. We have learned that you must want the will of God and you must love the will of God. Do you really want the will of God? Or have you convoluted the will of God thinking the will of God must be your will? Let me say this real quick. Uh, we are not asking God to come down and bless what we've planned. God is saying, you move to what I've planned for you, and there you'll find the blessing. Are you following me? There are many times we plan, and we just assume God is obligated to bless my plan or bless our plans. Let me tell you, tell, take it from a guy who's tried reeling God into my plan God is not obligated to bless your plan. The only thing God's op, uh, obligated to bless is his plan in your life. And that's more than semantics. That's reality. So you must love and want the will of God. Secondly, you need to sign a blank contract with the Lord. You remember that? God gives you a contract that says my will, God's will for your life. There's nothing on the contract. He says sign it. And you have to sign it and you have to hand it back and then he gets to fill it in as life goes on you say well i don't know that i like that then you don't trust god don't tell me you trust the lord and you won't sign a blank contract with him you have to sign the blank contract and i'll assure you again he puts some things in there in your lifetime that you'll go really and he'll say yeah really 
And you know what? You stay in the center of God's will. The third thing is that his will is knowable and his will is apprehendable. You can know God's will. The Bible says that you can ask and you can know, you can apprehend it, and you can have a sense of where he's leading you. Once known, you must do as he wills. In other words, you must be obedient. And then last week, I don't know if it was helpful because we were running out of time because of the announcement. So I hope you were helped, but that sometimes what you think is God's plan B is really his plan A. That's helpful. Because there have been moments I thought, have I blown the will of God here? But God's plan A, oftentimes you think may be God's plan B. And uh, he wants you to be in the will of God. And if you did not hear that message, it might be helpful because I think everyone at some time or another feels like they may have messed up in a decision. But as we wrap it all up, here we are, just a few moments. I've entitled this message as we conclude, I love the will of God. You don't have to pray about it. (laughs) You don't have to pray about it. All right. John chapter four. If you're there, say I'm there. Going to read starting with verse 31. And it's a story about the disciples uh, urging him to do something. And listen to what Jesus says. Verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged Jesus saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. You don't have to pray about it. Now, the Bible obviously teaches, and it teaches clearly, that prayer is a critically important part of yours and my life. You're not going to make it very long if you aren't being a That could be the sermon even today. Are you developing a prayer life? Is there ever a moment that you pray? Is there ever a moment that you slip away and you seek God and you visit with him? Because the fact is, none of us will make it very long without prayer being vital in all of our lives. So I thought if I used a title like the one I've just suggested to you, you don't have to pray about it. I thought maybe it might solicit your interest because... In fact, there are some things, as important as prayer is, there are some things that you simply do not have to pray about. In our text, it's interesting, Jesus is explaining to the disciples the will of God and how it works. And he's using the illustration of the moment when they're wanting him to eat. They're saying, stop, you've got to eat. And it's, it's a very natural, normal thing. In fact, eating is something we all do, right? In fact, after service today, I'm going to go get me something to eat because I'm going to be hungry. I don't like eating before I come to service because there's nothing worse than having just eaten and then having to stand up in front of people and talk. And then if something digests, you know, that's just that's, that's, that's an embarrassing moment. So I don't eat before I come. So I wait till afterwards. But eating, eating isn't evil, right? No, there's nothing evil about eating. 
There's nothing, there's nothing rebellious about eating. There's nothing wrong about eating. Eating is vitally important. You won't live long if you don't eat. But Jesus apparently is seeing something the disciples aren't getting. Because they're soliciting Jesus to do something, listen, totally legitimate. But he's asking, they're asking Jesus to do something totally legitimate at exactly the wrong moment. Follow? Something legitimate to do, but this isn't the moment to do it. They want him to eat, shall we say. But apparently it is a distraction to the will of God that is before him immediately. And so Jesus explains that there's this immediacy to the will of God, which he's been commissioned to do. And this moment to eat, legitimate action that the disciples are looking at him saying, you need to eat. Rabbi, it's time to eat. This is legitimate. It's not evil. There's nothing wrong with it. We all need to do it. You're not going to live long. You need to eat. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, but if I do this legitimate thing at this moment, it will detour the will of God. Now, let that sink in. There are things that you might do legitimately if you're not careful it can be the right thing at the wrong time that will detour the will of God. Now you may say, well, all right. But how does this kind of relate and apply to prayer? Well, let's take it like this. I think prayer, much like eating, is absolute must. You must eat. You must pray. Eating is a legitimate thing. Praying is certainly a legitimate and critical thing. You won't go long in life without eating, and you won't go long in life without praying. And, and you can begin to see how the analogy is set up. But listen, prayer cannot be used to procrastinate you doing the will of God. You know, we laugh about this, and it's been a joke that's been told around church circles for years. You know the spiritual way to dodge things that we don't want to do or we don't like to do. You know what we do, don't you? We say, I'll pray about it. I don't, I, inside, you, I mean, let's just be honest. We've all done it. I mean, you, don't be too spiritual because I've done it. I've been asked something, I go, I'll pray about it. And what that is, is it's a spiritual way of saying, okay, okay, I hear you. I, I don't want to be looked at being ear, you know, unspiritual or irreverent, but I'll pray about it. But internally, what I'm really saying is, hey, no way I'm going to do that. I'll pray about it. Now, think about this for just a minute. To say I'll pray about it is a legitimate thing to do, right? It's a legitimate thing to do. It's, it's a legitimate phrase. It's something we ought to be doing. We should be praying. But internally, sometimes we use secret, it becomes a secret Christian code for no. And then what happens is, if I look at the person and say, hey, I prayed about it, I don't think that's, that's for me, then it's God's fault. See, I don't have to take the heat. <laughs> if you don't like it, take it up with him. The truth I think Jesus was trying to underscore in the text is that the will of God is not negotiable at the table of my preferences. As legitimate as my preferences may be, the will of God still trumps my preferences. Jesus says the harvest is ready. Lift up your eyes. 
Don't say there's four months to get to it. Now's the time that it needs to be done. There are other times to eat. Yes, eating is important. But let's be obedient, the Lord says, to the moment that is in front of us. And I want to suggest to you that there are times God's will is before us. And as legitimate it is as it is to pray about it and to pray about everything that's in front of us, I want to suggest that sometimes we pray because we're procrastinating what we really know we ought to be doing obediently. There are, yes, some things that we really do have to pray about. But I do think there are things that you really don't have to pray about this. Now, as we have taught along this way, I told you that there are these tensions tensions within the will of god i think the reason christian people flounder at times with the will of god is because we do tend to conflate certain areas that may need to be separated okay you know me i don't believe in uh compartmentalization you've heard this i don't believe that something's sacred and something secular i believe that jesus is lord of all and if if you're a, a preacher a pastor an apostle prophet evangelist pastor teacher i mean that is as unto the lord and if you're a butcher a baker or a candlestick maker that is as unto the lord there is nothing that compartmentalizes this all earth is the lord's and all that it contains and if you're out there in a marketplace job then you have a marketplace ministry jesus is lord so i I don't believe that we compartmentalize or separate things but i do think in the will of god There are times that we need to understand there is a separation in understanding some things that that are just objectively, you know, the will of God and other things that may be subjectively, which is the first thing. This is these are tensions that we all have to maneuver through in understanding the will of God. And so I want to start with subjective and objective. Subjective leadings of the Lord always demand some prayer and seeking of wisdom subjective it means means there are things that aren't explicitly outlined in the scripture if you've got a job offer from target and you got a job offer from walmart and you got a job offer you know from cvs or you got a job offer from walgreens you know the bible nowhere says you know work at walgreens do not work at cvs you're not going to find that in the bible so you got to seek god and figure out where is it lord that you want me to be The objective will of God in those circumstances is that God wants you to work. See, you don't have to pray about does God want you to work. Because the Bible says clearly, if a man won't work, let him not eat. So we know that working is a part of God's plan. Where we may work may be something we need to pray about it. Objective precepts in God's word don't need to be prayed over. Except perhaps asking for the courage to be obedient. It doesn't say in Scripture what my career might be. So I probably do need to pray about the direction of my career. It doesn't say what city I should live in. So I might need to pray about what city I should live in. However, the Scripture does say, for example, that it's His will, and I'll get to this a little later, that everybody be in the house of God. So while you may need to pray about what church you may need to be at, here's what you don't have to pray about is whether or not you go to church. That's objective. You need to be in the house of God. He may lead you and direct you as to where that may be, but you need to be in the house of God. I'm going to I'm going to deal with several things here in just a moment that are objective in the scripture. I'm just wanting you to understand 
that if if you're praying about whether or not you should be in the house of God or or whether, uh, well, let's I'll take tithing or you should be a tither or anything else. These these are objective things. I don't have to pray about these things. OK, if you have to pray about whether to walk in purity or integrity, well, I don't know whether I should be integral here or not. I'll have to pray about it. No, you don't have to pray about that. You should be integral. God's word rightly interpreted is God's will. So in as much as we know what God's word is saying, we know that to be the will of God for our life. The second area that there's this tension is individual and corporate life. Individual and corporate. There is a will for your personal life and there is a will for the corporate body. It includes both the local church, our local church, and it would include the greater body of Christ. So your individual life, my individual life, is somewhat easier to navigate because you're in control of it. All of us are in control of our personal lives. And, we, and we're going to stipulate that you're in control of it in the will of God, that you're wanting to do the will of God. Corporate life oftentimes is more challenging because sometimes we're all being asked to yield to appropriate delegated authority or credible Christian leaders or influencers to step into the will of God, which at times probably leaves you with little or input. And that's a tension. Because here in America, you know, we're just rugged individualists and it's really hard for us here in America to receive direction outside of whatever input we're getting that we think God is giving it, giving it to us. And so, so there's this, there's this two-way trust street that has to exist. In order for us to find the will of God together as a people, you have to trust your leaders and your leaders have to trust you. And that can be an interesting dance in temporary church life because we all have to wrestle with the concept that if our local church and the broader body of christ is seeking to do the will of god then am i praying about those things to simply procrastinate my obedience or do i pray about things in order to truly be obedient because the greatest sin we must all be ever vigilant to stay out of is the sin of elevating our preferences to the will of god i believe it's a great sin within the church and that is we raise up our preferences and say my preference must be the will of god no no not always in fact one of the signs of the latter times is that there will be people who will ever be ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth i'm convinced this is a church people who've been taught perpetually but refuse to relinquish at times their their preferences God's precept they're continually taught but they refuse to walk in it so we need to be mindful of the tensions that exist between our individual responses and corporate and then finally the third tension that exists is between the specific will of God and a general will of God a specific will of God and a general will of God the Lord all through your Christian journey will speak to you and lead you into his will in specific and individual ways and we've already said you have to pray about that. You have to seek God. You'll have to probably take a step of faith. And when you take that step of faith, he'll begin to unfold more and more of his will. I found out that if you can get one step of his will, a lot of times that's when you get the next step of his will. He doesn't give you 10 steps. He gives you one step. He's, if you can be obedient to the one step, then he'll start giving you the next step. He won't give you all 10. But he has a specific will. I believe most definitely for you to walk in. 
There are, however, some general things that are clearly taught in the Scripture that, again, we don't have to pray about. And, and there are things that are a part of the package when you declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. When you say, see, this is the part of salvation that gets lost. When you say that I, I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, that is good and that's a part of it. But the confession isn't just that he's your Savior. The confession has been made that you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and have believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, Paul said in Romans 10. Then he says you shall be saved. For by confession of the mouth and by faith in the heart, those things are melded together in order to bring conversion in order that you might be an obedient child of God. Now hear me when I say this salvation and savior is linked to lord and king and so when we say jesus is lord what we're saying is this he has to call the shots in my life in other words he's the one that gets to lead me to show me his will i don't have the option of saying no i don't want the will of god well then why are you calling him lord then because you can't call him lord unless you're walking in the will of god there are certain things that come with the package of saying Jesus is Lord, things that we don't need to pray about. So I want to give you, I don't know, I think I had eight things listed here, and I'm not going to spend an inordinate amount of time, but there are just some things. It's not an exhaustive list by any means. Uh, there, are, there are other things that we could teach that are the will of God. But I want to share just a couple of things so that you can begin to implement God's will in those things that are obviously revealed in his word. Let me give you some examples that I believe are the will of God that you don't have to pray about. The first one is this, witnessing and even sharing the gospel. I believe that it is God's will for each one of us to witness our faith and to share the gospel. That's not something you have to pray about. You may not feel good at it, and a lot of us don't. A lot, of us, a lot of us don't feel like we're adept at it. A lot of us feel like we're not sure how we would approach that. Maybe we need to pray about courage. But to say to yourself, I don't have to witness my faith or I don't have to share the gospel. Well, that's just not true. First Timothy 2. I'm going to post a couple passages here. First Timothy 2, if we have it. Do we have that, that we can post that? First Timothy 2, 3 and 4. No, okay, well then, I can't, but 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, you can write these down. 2 Peter 3 and 9, these are two passages, 2 Peter 3 and 9, passages that clearly tell us that God's will is that none should perish, that all should come to repentance. And so, for that to take place, someone must witness or share the gospel with them. And I just want you, I don't want you to say anything out loud, this is just one of those rhetorical questions that you answer in the heart, but just, 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 wrestle with this question for just a moment ask yourself this question when was the last time you spontaneously shared your faith when was the last time you just shared your testimony or something that god was doing in your life with someone when was the last time that that you were just doing life and there came a moment and it could have been a moment with someone you came in contact with that you could have just shared some things that God was doing in your life. You didn't talk yourself out of it by saying, well, I don't know that the timing's right. You just did the will of God. Sometimes I think we're so worried about right timing that we forget that there may be a right time is all the time. I mean, really, I think sharing the gospel, it could be any time's a good time. To testify of your faith, 
to give God witness to your faith, to maybe share the gospel. I'm just trying to get us to break out of this thing that we're perpetually praying, but we've got to break out of the fact that sometimes we have to share our faith and it doesn't take any praying about it. It's just the time to do it. There's another interesting passage. Number two is this, rejoicing, things you don't have to pray about. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, it says, um, rejoice evermore, uh, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So why don't you put number three up uh, as well? Rejoicing, gratitude. Uh, these things you don't have to pray about. You don't have to pray about rejoicing. You don't have to pray about giving thanks. You don't have to pray about any of this. This is God's will. It's God's will for you to rejoice. It's God's will for you to be grateful. This is God's will. And uh, you don't have to pray about it and saying, should I be grateful? I don't feel grateful. Go, God says it's my will. Be grateful. Rejoice. I think there's a lot more that we can do obediently than having to spend a lot of time seeking and wondering if this is what I'm supposed to be at this moment. There's a fourth one here that's in fourth, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. It says, it says to, uh, to uh, this is the will of God, even in Christ Jesus, that you be sanctified and that you flee from sexual immorality. So God says, this is my will. My will is that you be separated or that you be set aside for my specific purposes. That's my will. Your life is now set aside for my purposes, my plans, and my will in your life. It's set. That is done. And, he says, that you're to avoid sexual impurity. So you don't have to pray about any of these, anything, whether it's, it's perverted sex, whether it's fornication, whether it's premarital, adultery, whatever forms of sexual perversion it may be. This isn't something you have to, to pray about. And, and say, well, we'll just see what God says about this. I've had people come to me before. And, and they've been shacking up, so to speak. They've been living together. And they'll look at me and say, we took it before the Lord. And we feel like God's okay with this. And I'm saying, I don't know what your Bible you're reading. That's not the will of God. You don't have to pray about this. Number five, I want you to hear this again. Worship. Worship is not about your preference. Worship is the will of God. The will of God is that you learn to worship. It's not your preference. It's not how you like to do it, but we're to learn how to worship. It may not come all at once, but you've got to be committed to learning what God's will is in worship. God is to be worshipped a certain way. He has designed the way he wants to be worshipped. You understand the false gods have a way they want to be worshipped. The false gods are worshipped. For example, Moloch was worshipped, as long as some of the other Baals, they were worshipped through child sacrifice. And if you wanted to worship Moloch or the Ashtoreth or the Baals, you'd have to bring your children and you'd have to sacrifice them. That's unbelievably depraved, is it not? But if you were going to worship the false gods, they dictated how they were to be worshipped. And the people responded. Now, gratefully... Uh, Jehovah Yahweh, Jesus, does not demand human sacrifice. In fact, he made the sacrifice for you, which makes it different. He's totally different. However, even in him making the sacrifice, interestingly, he still has a way in which he wants to be worshipped. And the Bible teaches us these things. He tells us that we're to sing unto him a new song. So you can't say, well, I don't carry a tune very well. I 
I, I don't really like singing. I don't know. Who cares what you like? It's the worship of God. It's the will of God. I know this is crawling up a preference tree. But this is important we hear this. There's sometimes saying, I don't mind. It's hard for me to get my arm up. I, I understand it was hard for me years ago to get my arm up. I, I, I went through stages. It was like for a while I could do this. And then a little bit later I could do this. And finally I got this. And then I got two antennas up. I, under, I didn't get there overnight either. But something in me said, it's not up to me. God has said I want to be worshipped with upraised hands. Why would God want that? It's because it's the universal sign of surrender. And God wants to know you're surrendered. I'm just giving you some examples. He, he talks about the clapping of hands. He talks about the shout. He talks about ways to worship him. And that's his will. And we're unabashedly zealous about the fact that we want as a church to do the will of God. Now, no one's going to force anybody to do anything they don't want to do. No one's going to leverage you to do something you don't want to do. So don't walk out of here and say, he's going to force me. Now, I'm not going to force you to do anything. I can't force people to do whatever. You, you've got to decide how committed you are to the will of God. I'm, I've, I've got enough handling my life, my household. I'll let you deal with God on that yourself. Number six is fellowship. I, I'm moving quickly. Fellowship. We mentioned this already. Koinonia. Hebrews 10 talks about that it is God's will that we be in the house of God. You may have to pray about your church. You may be led to your church. God may, may lead you to where you're to, to uh, worship him and you're to serve him, but you're to be in a local church. So I, I, we prayed for Lee, and God bless. We hate to see Lee go up the road to Wilmington, but I look at Lee and I say, Lee, you got to find a local church. you got to find one because that's God's will. She'll pray. I believe she will. And the Lord will lead her footsteps because she knows I got to be in a local church. Tithing or generosity. It's God's will. We don't have to pray about that. It's, it's just, he says, test me in this. Prove me in this. See if I won't do this. Number eight is justice in Micah chapter six, verse eight. In fact, put up the last three. Justice, mercy, and humility. He says, what is it that God asks of us? He said to do justice to love mercy, and to walk in humility. These are things that are God's will. Now, that's not an exhaustive list. I'm just giving you things. I was just kind of writing things down. But we've got to, we've got to be committed to doing the will of God. Now, here's what I want to leave you with, and I do want us to find this, and it may be on the screen. If not, we're still going to find it. Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21 find that for me will you real quick i want to read this one oh we got it okay here we go now may the god of peace who is the author and giver of peace who brought again from the dead our lord jesus that great shepherd of the sheep by the blood that sealed ratified the everlasting agreement the covenant the testament strengthen complete and perfect and make you what you ought to be and equip you, that's the phrase, and equip you with everything good that you may carry out his will while he himself works in you and accomplishes that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. The Lord wants to equip you, it says there, with everything good so that you can carry out the will of God. There's really no excuse. He's equipped us in order to be obedient children unto him. I love the will of God. How about you? Do you still love the will of God? I love the will of God. Hey, stand with me, will you please? I want to pray for you that you would be faithful in the will of God. I was reading, I I was uh, sent an article from a Christian magazine. It's interesting. They're doing surveys recently. It's amazing what people must write on a survey because I thought this was absolutely stunning to me. But he says in America today in church that the average Christian, I'm just giving you that this is this is the study they've done. The average Christian maintains that it's perfectly legitimate to only have to be in church one to two times a month. That's where we're at. And I'm just reading the article. This was out of an article. You got to love the will of God. The will of God is, the Lord says, you can't forsake that assembly. You got to be in there. There's something about that that is spiritually strengthening. I've often wondered, I don't know, this is just the way my mind goes. I often wonder when the disciples were following Jesus and Jesus said something, if they looked at each other and said, hey, we'll pray about it. I I just wonder. I, I understand. He's Jesus. I get it. But, but do you get what I'm saying? They didn't have to pray about it. Why? Because Jesus was clear. So let's make sure that as we understand and as, as we receive and as we hear that we aren't just cherry pickers. We aren't just picking and choosing what we like. And oh, I kind of like what what pastor was teaching there out of the scripture, but I heard that and I don't know that I like that. So I'll let that go. You know, this isn't Christianity is not cherry picking. Christianity is saying yes to the will and to the word of God. Father, I pray right now for your people. Lord, we want to be in the center of your will. It's not just something we say because it's what we're supposed to say. But Lord, it's a heart matter that where you lead, we will follow. And that what you ask, we shall do. And in as much as we can know that, and we're not using ignorance as a method of dodging, but Lord, in as much as we can know, we want you to know that our heart is to be in the center of what you're up to. We're not asking you to come down and just to bless our plans. But Lord, we're moving into the center of your plans so that we might find the blessing. And Lord, I ask right now of your people, because they have been a good people, and they have been been obedient and responsive in so very many different ways. And Lord, I just pray right now that there are some here that this is simply a reaffirmation of what they have lived their whole life, and let it be such. But there are some, Lord, I want them to be challenged to go to that place where they can sign the contract, they can say yes to you, and they say, Lord, make it plain, make it clear, let me see it in your word. I want to be in the center of God's will. And Lord, when they find the center of your will, they're going to find everything necessary, all resource, resource necessary. They will lack nothing when they're in the center of your will. So Lord, I'm praying right now, and as a church I pray this, 
Lord, that we're doing our best to, to understand next steps and where we go and how this works and trusting you for the future and trying not to get all of our man-made charts and, and schematics uh, in front of our eyes so that we can plan it out and drag you into it. But, Lord, we're trying to follow you, following the, the cloud by day and the fire by night, just trying to follow you step by step by step. So, Lord, keep making it plain and clear. And, Lord, we honor you. As a people of God, we honor you. So, Lord, we love you. We need you. We want you. Let your kingdom come. No, I tell you what. Let's all do this together. We don't often do this. But why don't we pray together the Lord's Prayer? How about that? Together. And say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's give the Lord a hand, shall we? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we start the new series next week, which I'm always super excited about. So I'll see you. Don't miss Wednesday. Man, Wednesdays have been off the chart. All right, talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And uh, we're going to finish up chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. So you can get in on that, and there's some good stuff coming. All right, God bless. Love each other. Enjoy each other. You are released. jobs or better jobs to favor us with raises and bonuses benefits and settlements sales and commissions interest and income estates and inheritances rebates and returns checks in the mail gifts and surprises prosperous retirements finding money that was lost bills paid off debts demolished royalties received and enemies scattered according to the promise of deuteronomy 28 that all may see we are called by and serve the true and living god it's offering time come on you get a chance to put something in god's hands that's literally what we get to do right now very good tell chris great job all right amen prosperous retirements Amen. Let's pray and let's release. The tithe is the Lord's. It's his anyway. Our offerings are that which we give over and above the, the tithe. And it's an opportunity to just say, Lord, I love you. But let's, let's give all of our offerings unto him right now. This is if the hand of the Lord is coming straight to you. Father, we know that when we place things in your hands, miraculous things can take place. Lord, multiplication of resource. Uh, you have an ability to open up the heavens of wind, uh, the, the windows of heaven and pour us out blessings. Your word says we can't even contain them. You'll break curses off our life. You'll rebuke the devourer to eat up everything that we make. And Lord, we just want to believe you. We trust you in these things. We don't trust man. We trust you. And as we act at this moment, we're not acting in the natural. We're actually doing something incredibly spiritual. We're trusting you. We give it 
to you. It'll be stewarded through this church, but we give it to you. So, Lord, right now, know our hearts and do miracles in your people. Lord, bless them. Bless them, I pray. Not just so they can sit in their little pool and just wait around in their blessings so that we might turn be a blessing in the earth. Amen. And amen. Before you're seated, though, before you're seated, listen, everyone, I want everyone to say this. According to Deuteronomy 8.18, it says that it is God it is God who gives us the power to create wealth. That's, that's the word of the Lord. Now, this is what I want you to say right now. And you it. say it right now. Say, wealth is coming my way. One more time. Wealth is coming my way. In Jesus' name. Now, when it comes, it isn't for you just to get greedy and self-centered. It's because God has plans. So you'll pray about all that wealth that comes your way, right? Amen. You may be seated, gentlemen. You can wait on the people. Thank you so much for your giving today. And as the guys are waiting upon you, I want to just give you a short update from yesterday. We had a nice group show up from Legacy in order to bless the folks out at Brighton Place. As you know the story, my wife just felt quickened by the Holy Spirit to head out to Brighton Place and just bless the residents that are out there. We drive by that frequently uh, when we go uh, from the uh, church offices, apartment. And she just said we need to do something there. So we acted on that, and we did, and we handed out Easter baskets, and we were able to make a number of new friends. They're just some wonderful people and some residents out there. And uh, we have a couple of those residents with us today. We won't put those ladies on the spot, but thank you for being with us today, ladies. We appreciate you coming and taking the time to do that here in the afternoon. Give them a hand. Just say thanks for coming. and. And being with us and and they were all just wonderful people all of them open and receptive and just got a nice little card thanking you for your kindness legacy church thank you for your gestures and kindness the the cards were beautiful the baskets were most appreciated and we're thanking god for you brighton place residents right there at orleans road so god bless you all there and we'll just believe god will prosper all the hands out there and uh, we were glad to be a blessing. Put a smile on all the faces of the folks that were able to do that. Amen. Are you ready now to hear the word of the Lord on this Resurrection Sunday? Come on now. God has something he wants to say. And we're going to teach the word today. If you have your Bibles, open it up to the book of Romans. I'm going to be reading out of Romans chapter 8. I can think of no better Sunday to talk about our theme that we've entitled this month, I Love God's Promises. What better Sunday and what better theme than God's promises on this Resurrection Sunday? Because you realize that untold millions of people are celebrating Christ's resurrection today. Christians from all across the globe are celebrating the resurrection. They're celebrating in large gatherings. They're, they're there are right now, probably at this moment, somewhere in the world, stadiums that are filled with Christians celebrating the resurrection. There were people that got up at the crack of dawn celebrating the resurrections. There were uh, large churches that hold multiple, multiple services celebrating the resurrection. There are small groups right now, I guarantee you, in China in their homes that maybe, you know, uh, seven to ten people are gathered in that home and they're celebrating the resurrection. And here we are, and it's two o'clock in the afternoon, I get it, and we are celebrating the resurrection. How many of you know that every hour of the day we should celebrate the resurrection? And the message that I give today 
I had mentioned to you that, in fact, those of you that are on social media, I actually posted something a number of weeks ago, that uh, I just had some download that came to me from the Lord. And I'm going I'm to talk just real briefly about that. But, but I know we have guests today. I'm so glad you're here. And I believe God has something to say to you today as well. So I, I don't believe you're out of the loop. I believe that if you have ears to hear, the Lord will say something to you. But I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the legacy tribe, though, in the sense that I, I just believe that there's a word here that can really encourage us, that encouraged me. Several weeks ago, I was in a place speaking at a church in Monroe, North Carolina. And uh, Monroe is kind of like the northeast side of the Charlotte area. It's only a few miles, actually, from the South Carolina border where you get to Fort, Fort Mill, uh, into that area. I was at a church from a good friend of mine, uh, Billy Gowan, from years ago. He was a youth pastor when I was on staff together at Evangel Cathedral. And he has been pastoring this church, Life Church of Monroe, for a number of years now. And he'd asked me to come up, talk about revival, and so I did, and um, I was praying in the hotel room before service. God's been giving me, by the way, this new template for prophesying. And uh, for those of you that don't know, for years the Lord has had a prophetic ministry for me, and the reason I don't prophesy as much probably in this house, or if I do, I prophesy more congregationally, uh, is because I know too much about most of you. And, and it's hard, it's, it's hard to keep that clean because when you prophesy, you want to make sure it's the word of the Lord and not just the word of what pastor knows or the word of whoever knows. And if I do ever give people a word, it's because the impression is, is deep and profound, but, but, but I've been getting this new template. And, and so it has, has pushed me to pray before I get into services, even, even in a more intense way. And so I was praying about that day and in the church in Monroe and God began, his spirit came in that room, and, and this doesn't happen to me all the time. It doesn't happen to me. If you think that pastor gets these breezes of inspiration that just are amazing that comes to him, and then he brings this message, that isn't always how it works. Sometimes you're just studying God's word, and you just dig it out. And it doesn't feel maybe as anointed as maybe it will come across, but, but sometimes it's just like some days you like going to work and some days you don't like going to work. Some days I bet, Anna, you feel like, hey, as a teacher, I'm getting through today. This lesson I had for them hit the mark, yay, and you're happy and glad, and you even might even say God was a part of it. But then there are some days you go, to, you go to school and you go, here I am, Lord, you know. How many of you know that works for everybody that way? It works for everybody that way. But this was a day that this breeze came, and God began to download some inspiration and he just sort of shared, not in an audible voice, I didn't hear anything audibly, but, but, I, but I sensed some things in my spirit that it encouraged me, and hopefully I can communicate it in such a way that it might encourage you too. How many of you would like to be encouraged on a resurrection Sunday morning, afternoon? I keep prophesying morning, morning. Are you at Romans eight eleven? I'm entitling the message today, The Lynchpin. The Lynchpin. I'll explain that in just a moment. Romans 8, 11, this is what we read. Paul writes, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
the linchpin. Now, on most Easter's, I think through the years as I best can recall, I read usually from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I read from the Gospels in order that we can hear the accounts again of the familiar story that most of you have heard for years. Even if you don't know all the details exactly, most of you know enough of the story that you could probably recount the whole story of Christ's Passion Week in some form or fashion to anybody who would ask. So we, so we all are familiar with the account. But today, instead of reading from the Gospels, I wanted to just read something Paul had written. Because what Paul does is not that he reminds everybody as to what happened with regards to the death, burial, and resurrection. But he leaps to this truth as to what the repercussion of the resurrection means to you and to me. Paul makes it personal. See, that's what I think maybe today we need to just keep in mind, that the resurrection is not just an historical event, but that God really wants to make it personal. And Paul says that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is moving inside of you as a believer. Now just stop for a minute and weigh that. That's remarkably profound. The same spirit that raised Jesus up from the dead. The same spirit that blew life into a body that was beaten to a pulp. He was dead. There was no doubt about it. It was over. He was was lashed unmercifully. He was hung and crucified, asphyxiated on a cross unmercifully. He was stabbed with a sphere unmercifully. He was put in a tomb, a big old rock rolled and sealed. He was dead. He was gone. It was over. And God shows up. He raises him from the dead. He pushes aside the rock. He brings him out of that tomb. He is alive and he says this same spirit that raised Jesus up and did these things is in you. Man, just chew on that for a minute. That Christians that he was writing to in Rome needed to hear that. Rome was doing everything it could do to wipe out this cult called Christianity. They didn't want Christians. They didn't like Christians. You've heard me teach on all the reasons Rome wanted nothing to do with Christianity, but Paul reminded them, as well as later writers would remind us, things like, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, the Roman world was nothing like our world. There weren't churches on every corner. There was no Christian culture. If you go to Rome today, you see Catholic edifices everywhere. That wasn't anything like it was in Paul's day. It was pagan. It was heathen. It was adverse. It was hostile. There was no church to attend in A.D., you know, 65. There were no service time options. There was no programs going on. There was no no office or church building or organization. It was just what I call primal faith. These people had a faith. It was primal. But yet in that that faith that they had, it was spreading like wildfire, and the culture wanted to wipe it out. But Paul was reminding them that something beyond this world was working in people's hearts. Something 
that's remarkable. And we need to be reminded of that today because we tend to lose sight of that. But for that to be revelation to us, we have to be reminded that the resurrection of Jesus isn't some Dr. Zeus story. It isn't like Horton hears a who. It isn't, you know, the cat in the hat. It isn't Aesop's fable. It isn't just these fables that have good meanings at the end of the story. It's not some sort of spiritual wives' tale. It's real. Jesus was and is and forever shall be real and alive. Recently, if you haven't had opportunity, I hope you get the opportunity. I think some of you have saw the new movie that's out, The Case for Christ. It's just a great, great movie. It's, it's not cheesy at all. In fact, if you've never read Lee Strobel's book concerning the case for Christ, you need to read it. Lee Strobel was a hostile atheist. And the movie literally is his biography, how he was this hostile atheistic journalist. He was quite a profound journalist. And, and his wife became born again. And his marriage started to have struggles because she was born again, but he wasn't and wanted nothing to do with this newfound faith. And so he was going to make the case that Christianity was false. And through this movie, you begin to see that uh, he's working, trying to dispel Christianity. And one of his friends at the newspaper said, well, you might as well work on dispelling the resurrection Because if you can dispel the resurrection, basically you've taken out the linchpin because the resurrection is the linchpin to everything. If you can can take that away, then you, you can undermine the whole thing. But he said, good luck. Many have tried for thousands of years and we're still around. And it's a powerful movie about apologetics, if you like that kind of stuff, about reaching people. There was another movie, in fact, I was listening, Ed, to your message last week, and you mentioned that message, uh, movie Risen, and about a Roman soldier it was another angle who was ordered to find the missing Christ who had resurrected. And the movie is about him working through his skepticisms until he finally comes to the conclusion that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. It's interesting how fascinated these days the Hollywood scene is concerning Jesus. Back in seminary, this is a long time ago when I was in school, probably about 1983, so this is back in the dinosaur age for some of you. I was at seminary, and there was this Wesleyan scholar, an incredible speaker, a man by the name of James Earl Massey, pastor, scholar. He, He was a black man, and he was sharing with us there at seminary some things that we had a question and answer time with this guy, and somebody asked him, now remember this is 1983, this is over 30 years ago, and they were just quizzing him about about black churches and black preaching, and they were asking all sorts of questions, and and they were asking him questions concerning how there 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 seemed to be a, a conservative theological perspective, at least at that time, and and why it was there was passion and other things within the black culture and their churches. And I'll never forget Dr. Massey when he looked at us and he took his glasses off. And this is what he said to us. And you would expect something from as educated and scholarly a man as he was. Some, something, it, it, well, it was profound, but something, I guess, more cerebral. But this is what he said. He said, in our circles, this is what we do. We just tell the story. And the story carries its own authority. I thought, that's good. You don't have to worry about defending it. You just tell it. 
Don't worry about trying to prove it. You just tell it. And it was encouraging as I began to think of all of these things, which brings me back to that word linchpin. The resurrection is the linchpin. Now, if you don't know what a linchpin is, watch the screen, because I'm going to tell you what a linchpin is. A linchpin is a locking pin inserted crosswise as through the end of a shaft or axle. One that serves to hold together parts or elements that exist or function as a unit. Or the linchpin is what a piece of evidence might be in a defense lawyer's case. Now, I, I'm sure most linchpins look like this. It's like, it's like a piece of metal that's got two little things and you stick it through a hole and then, and, and, and then you move those two parts. Of, you know what I'm talking about now, a linchpin. And it holds. I, rem- I, I know when I used to put kids toys together like at christmas and you put a wheel on their wagon a lot of times you'd have to put a linchpin in the axle and 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 then twist the bottom because that would allow the wheel to move the linchpin if you don't have the linchpin the wheel falls off if you don't have the linchpin something something breaks or something won't work right because everything is held together by that linchpin now hear me the resurrection is to christians the linchpin the linchpin of the resurrection holds everything we do together if the if the resurrection is not true all of christianity is not true it's the linchpin it's the catalyst for everything we aspire to do for god without the resurrection christianity is just a nice little philosophy if you remove the resurrection everything else falls apart but this is the good news And it's that the resurrection is better attested to than many of the historical events of secular history. It is more true and more factual that Jesus rose from the dead that Plato or Aristotle existed. I can go down the list of all the historical figures you would without question say, well, that's true, it's history. I am here to tell you there is more historical fact concerning Jesus and the resurrection than almost anything. People may reject Jesus, but if they reject Jesus, they cannot reject him based on the facts of his life. You may not like him, you may not want him, you may reject him, but don't you come tell me it's because it's all a fairy tale, because now you're not even being integral. The resurrection. We need to get resurrection back in us. Why is this necessary? Why is the resurrection necessary? I'm going to move through this quickly. Now, everybody stay zoned in. I'm not going to be here long, but this is important. Every time I get you, I don't get you for, you know, lengthy periods of time. The TV gets you all week. Media gets you all week. Your boss gets you all week. I only get you for about 35 minutes. So so bear with me. Keep zoned in. Why is the resurrection necessary? Because it provides the conclusion to what we call the atonement atonement don't think i'm shooting over your head you can you're learning everyone say i'm learning come on say i am a disciple of jesus and i need to learn sure you do you need to learn atonement say well that's over three syllables why would i need to know that listen it's important you can learn three syllable words atonement literally you think of it this way think of this phrase at one mint at one mint atonement is what 
what God provided in order that you could be at one with him. Atonement literally means to become one with God at one. So when Jesus died on the cross, he provided atonement. He provided the means by which you and I could be at one with God. He died for our sins and made atonement for our sins so that you and I who are sinful could be at one with a God who is holy. Holy God, sinful man, how do we reconcile this gap that's between the two of us? Jesus. Jesus provided a way that we could become at one with God. So atonement. See, I'm not even going to talk to you about propitiation. If I gave you two three-syllable words, you know, this afternoon, it'd be overwhelming, wouldn't it? Pastor used two words that were just propitiation. Oh, my Lord, five syllables. So we'll forget a propitiation over there. Atonement. Everyone say atonement. Now, listen, here, here are things, and all of, these, all of these are true. I'm about ready to share with you all the ways people view atonement. And you're going you're gonna to recognize them just like this. So don't, don't freak, all right? This isn't like going to theology class. I'm gonna, but it's important that you understand because, because the cross, you won't get why the resurrection is important unless we get just a little of the atonement in our system. Why did Jesus die on the cross? The first reason some people suggest is what we call the ransom theory. The ransom theory is this, and you've heard this before, and that is that Satan had held humanity captive to sin, and in order to rescue humanity, God had to ransom us from the power of Satan. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus gave his life as a what? As a ransom for many, right? So when, when Jesus died on the cross, and a piece of this is true, that, that he literally ransomed you from the captivity of the enemy. You were bound in chains. You were bound in, in ropes. You were bound to all kinds of things. And Satan wasn't going to let you go until the ransom had been paid. And guess what? Jesus came your way and said, may I pay your ransom? Some of you said yes. I hope everyone says yes. Ransom. Secondly, what happened when Jesus died on the cross? One of them was satisfaction. What does that mean? It means that a holy God, if you're a holy God, now think of this, you're holy, you're perfect. There is no error in you. And you're looking at all of humanity and what we do. Is this not true? <laughs> if, if, if it weren't for the fact that God is love, he'd probably pretty, be pretty ticked at us most of the time. Isn't it true? The things we'll do, the messes we'll get into, the way we'll blaspheme or the way we'll just be in rebellion. So he's mad. His holiness has been impugned and something has to satisfy that wounded honor. What did Jesus do on the cross? He satisfied the vindictive part of God's justice. Who would if he had moved forward if he weren't for, the, weren't for the fact he was long-suffering. His justice would demand that he wipe us out because all of us had been rebels before him. So his cross satisfies that. Number three is this. It's called moral influence. When Jesus died on the cross, it's also a beautiful picture of what we call sacrificial love. In fact, 
Most people who espouse this, unfortunately, don't believe any of the other things. They believe basically that his death was a picture of simply winning hearts over to God by an act of great love. And you've heard this. Jesus loved you so much, he gave his life for you. And if you were the only one, he would have died for you. And look at the great sacrificial act. And so we watch the passion of the Christ. We watch the brutality of the, 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 the whipping and, and the cross. And, and, and we're moved by it. It is a moving thing. And, and moral influence means because he sacrificed himself for others and for me in particular, we're moved to these things. And that's a part. I have no problem saying that's a part of what happened on the cross. The fourth one is governmental, which means that when Jesus died, he paid the price not only for specific sins, but the sins of all the universe. Because God wanted to maintain good order and he wanted to maintain proper government. And so something had to take place in order for this chaotic, sin-broken world in order to maintain its, its, I guess, balance or maintain its, its, its wholeness so we all didn't go crazy. And so Jesus died in order that our past, our present, and even our future sins uh, would be atoned for in order that this whole world wouldn't just break down in anarchy. And there's some truth to that too. Because if it's not for the grace of God that's extended toward all of mankind, do you not realize this place would be like an insane asylum? And so Jesus dies in order to make at one even the whole world. It doesn't mean everybody's saved. It just means that, that his sacrifice atones for the fracturedness of the universe and in that atonement it keeps us living and breathing until some of us come to our senses and say yes to him and then the fifth one and the last one is what should be taught because i believe it's the most biblical all of them have some biblical reference but the fifth one is called substitution substitution is this that jesus died on the cross as a substitute for you and me. Now, I never heard this. You see, I grew up in a church, and I went to that church till I was 18 years old, and I was in it almost all the time, and I never heard the gospel once. I'm telling you exactly what the gospel is here. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for you and me. This is what the Bible says. He became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God sent his son to take upon himself all of our sins. He takes upon the sins of the world. And when we receive him as Lord into our life, what happens is all of his perfectness and righteousness gets transferred to us. And so he becomes sin. Then we become righteousness. So when God looks at us, he's not looking just at you and me. He's not looking at Kevin, the screw up. He's looking at Kevin who opened his heart, received Jesus into it. He's seeing the righteousness of his son in me. So no longer am I under the weight of God's wrath that would come upon me, that would break me. It would kill me. It, it would eternally send me to hell. It would separate me forever from him because my sins, my sins can't be seen before a holy God. But here's the good news. The minute I said yes to Jesus was the moment he said, cast your sins upon me and I will cast my righteousness upon you. 
And at that moment, God says, yes, I see Kevin. I see what he has done. I see all the ways he's rebelled. I see all the ways he's walked away from me. But I also see now he said yes to my son. He said yes to the satisfaction. He said yes to the ransom. He said yes to the substitute. He said yes to these things. So I no longer see his sins. I will cast them as far as the east is from the west. I will put them in the sea of my forgetfulness and remember them no more. I see now the righteousness of my son in him. So as I look at Kevin, I am actually seeing Jesus in him. That's pretty good stuff. And that's what happened to you if you say Jesus is Lord of your life. It's not just me. I'm not this special person. God says I, res I am a respecter of no man. What I did for pastor, I'll do for anyone. I, I, let me hear me. He did it despite me being pastor. All the theories, I could go through this. It's great stuff to teach. And all of these theories, Jesus died on a cross... To wipe your slate clean. I remember when I was a custodian, I, there were blackboards. And back in those days, chalkboards, blackboards, they actually were black. And we had a special eraser every Friday. We would take across that blackboard because the teachers always loved on Monday mornings to see that chalkboard clean as a whistle. Sometimes we'd even get water out and we'd water it down. And it was just clean as a whistle. So when they pulled that chalk out, it would be like writing. Because you know what a chalkboard does. If you write on it long enough in a race, it has all that dust. And it's just, it's, it's dust. The atonement is like every Friday night at the elementary school. Jesus wipes your slate clean. He wipes, why does he wipe it clean? It's because he wants to take his piece of chalk and begin to write on your heart and write on your life, your destiny and your purpose. He wants to write something new on you. It cleans the slate, but hear me, cleaning the slate is important. It is good and it needs to be done. But the resurrection is about keeping the, keeping the board clean and keeping the board right. And, and victory and overcoming, because here's what our problem is. God begins to write on the, on the clean chalkboard, and then what we want to do is we want to go out and, 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 and do our thing and, and, and continue in our sin. And so we pull out the eraser then, and we begin to erase God's plan. And the good news is, He will come again. If you sin, He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin, if you'll confess. And again, he'll wipe it clean. This is the amazing thing. Now, that doesn't mean we get to sin and get an atonement. Sin and get an atonement. Sin and get an atonement. I'm not, listen, after a while, even God's smart enough to know that something hasn't happened inside of you. He becomes simply your, your janitor who will come in after every weekend. Like every Sunday night, after you've done your weekend, he comes in on Sunday night and he cleans the slate again. Now, hear me, he will do that. He's the God of multiple chances. But the resurrection, this is the part you got to get revelation. The resurrection part of it is the, is the part that gives us the victory and the overcoming that allows that chalkboard to stay in such a state that he can continue to write his will so that we become, as Paul said, living epistles. Now, there are several things 
that the resurrection provides. And here's the good news. I'm going to go through these four things rapidly, and I'm going to, I'm going to get to the end. I'm going to get the download. If you don't know what the download was that I got in Monroe, North Carolina, I'm getting there. But I'm making sure everybody's on the same page, on the same board. What does the resurrection really provide? It's this. Number one is this. Death is not the end. <laughs> you know, whenever you die, there's an immediate judgment. As a believer, when I die, my body will stop. The Bible says that I enter into some form of sleep. Now, that word sleep doesn't mean like I'm sleeping like I will tonight. It's not like natural sleep, but your spirit and your soul is released to be in the presence of the Lord. Now, wherever the Lord is right now, when I die, that's where I will be released. If you were to die and you're dying in the Lord, your spirit, your soul will be released into the presence of the Lord. And I believe that as we're waiting in the presence of the Lord, that we'll enjoy great peace and joy and all those sorts of things until the day arrives. And Paul said that this would be a mystery. And you'll, you'll see why here in just a moment. But Paul said this is a mystery, but there's coming a day because of Christ's resurrection being a first fruit that you and I will be reunited with our bodies even if we died centuries ago. That somehow in a mysterious form, bodies will come together. That which has turned to dust will suddenly materialize as a glorified body again. And what will happen will be that you and I as believers will be resurrected from the earth in bodily form the sea will give up its dead the people that have perished in fire their ashes scattered everywhere will miraculously come together and they will be raised up out of the ashes we're not going to spend eternity as this nebulous ethereal spirit being we will have bodies we will be in glorified state we will be just like jesus when he walked on this earth as a matter of fact when this is all said and done you and i are going to be back on this earth walking on it Christ's resurrection seals that deal. That's why death is not the end. Death is a door. Why do we fear it? It's because as a human being, we only get to face it once. And we don't know much about it. Anybody that we've seen die, they, they're dead and they don't know. They can't tell us much about it. We don't know if it hurts. We don't know if there's any pain. We don't know, is there struggle? Is this thing going to be terrible? All the normal questions that surround death. I watched, I watched people die. I've been there when they've died. And I look at it and, and, and I don't know. I don't know. Did that hurt them? Uh, did they struggle? What was going on at that moment? I'm going to face it one of these days if Jesus tarries. And all of these things bring questions. And it can even bring fear to us. But hear me when I say this. Jesus' resurrection teaches me that I have nothing to fear. Death is but a door. Jesus is the only one that has the ability to have died and come back and to look at those who follow him and say this, fear not. <laughs> fear not. I've got the keys to this moment. And it's not the end of your trail. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He came back. Therefore, if I throw my confidence in him, I have no reason to fear anymore. Do I want to die? Obviously not. I'm not looking forward to death, so to speak. I still want grandbabies. I want to see my, my grandbaby Jude grow up. I still want to see my children accomplish great and wonderful things. I have all these natural aspirations, but this much I know. If I die, it's not the end. 
Glory to God. I'll just preach myself happy here. Number two, the resurrection is a vindication of the truth. Christ was crucified for a number of reasons, spiritual and natural. He was considered dangerous by religious and secular authority. He was considered dangerous by the devil himself. But the resurrection vindicates every promise, every word, every precept, every principle, every commandment, everything Jesus ever spoke. And it was Jesus who spoke in the Old Testament too. Because he and the Father are one. How do I know Jesus will come again? How do I know he will receive his church? Because he was raised from the dead. And if he said he'd be raised from the dead, I have no reason to doubt anything else he may say. How do I know that every enemy will eventually be defeated and that I'm going to be vindicated to every foe? How do I know this? It's because he was raised from the dead. If a man who dies and tells me he will rise again and does that, hear me, we'd be smart to pay attention to everything he said. What does the resurrection mean? Number three, it means victory over sin. Now, I understand everything's simple and profound, but bear with me. We know that the wages of sin is death. Sin begets death. You know, this is the interesting thing about sin. Sin, sin never gets you right away. Sin always lets you come, come on, come on, come on. And it lets you, that's the deceiving part of it. It, it, it pulls you and it brings you a direction until finally it gets you and then the wages the wages are released. Whatever is sin or is associated with it will ultimately bring death. It's not being negative, it's just being biblical. A resurrection was necessary because if the cross satisfied the wrath of God against sin, then we can be brought to the place that the resurrection can begin to give us victory over that very sin nature. The cross illustrates the horrific nature of sin but the resurrection demonstrates the victory you and I can have over sin. That's why Satan wants to keep us blinded to the resurrection. When he arose, the Bible says he arose and was seated at the right hand of God. And now it says that when you receive him, that now you and I have been seated with him in heavenly places. Is that not incredible? I'm seated right now. I know it looks like I'm preaching to you, but in actuality, I am seated with him in heavenly places, which means that the same victory and authority that Jesus has at this very moment is being transferred to me as a joint heir with him in this regard. We just have to apply it. So whenever anything's thrown at me that seems overwhelming, I need to remember that because of the resurrection, I've been seated to overcome what's in front of me. Finally is this, and I'm here at the end. What does the resurrection mean? This was the download. The resurrection is a template of God's ways. A template of God's ways. I want to remind you, and this is what I was reminded of, that Christianity is about resurrections. It's not about rearrangement. It's not about revisioning. It's not even about restarts. Christianity is not about church growth. It's not about conferences. 
Christianity is not a self-help program. Christianity is not about simply finding a good moral code or boundary that you can live your life by and you'll just be a better person. Christianity isn't about simply turning over a new leaf or pulling up oneself by their own bootstraps. Some of us have pulled up ourselves so many times with those bootstraps, we broke the, we broke the, broke the strap. Christianity is not about making life more comfortable or making it more convenient. Christianity is not about adding a religious piece to your already packed schedule or responsibilities. Christianity is, however, about Jesus who was unjustly killed for the needs of others. But even in that injustice, he arose, vindicated that what he provided is what humanity desperately needs. And he begins to offer a template. This becomes the template to all who put their trust in him. Jesus' template is this. You have a vision. You die to the vision. And God resurrects the vision. That's the template. And he offers this template to all who put their trust in him. It's like I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is, is that God wants to bring to pass a resurrected, powerful life in you and in me. Here's the, here's the bad news or the tough news, and it's this. You're going to have to die to some things. Because he's not resurrecting your strength. He's resurrecting your death. And I'm not suggesting that you nor I are anything like Jesus. I make no claim to divinity, nor should you. And we all know that because we live around each other. Ain't none of us Jesus here. But his spirit makes possible the same happenings in us as happened in him. Jesus said, the works that I do, you shall do in greater works than these. So he will raise you up as an individual. He will raise us up as a church. He will take things that have died and he loves raising them up. So when they're raised up, no one can say, ah, well, they were probably just, you know, out of it for a little while. That's what people want to do with Jesus. You know, that's one of the theories of his death, that he just sort of passed out, and, and, and he wasn't really dead. And when they put him in the tomb, the cool nature of the tomb eventually revived him, and, uh, you know, he, he got up, and he actually, you know, which is really amazing that a guy that was beaten like him and crucified and a spear thrust in his side and all of these things sitting in a cold, dark, damp tomb had what it took to get up and roll that stone that took about, you know, four or five Roman soldiers to roll it in front of it. I mean, that, that would be an amazing story too. It's just not the one that happened. There's some things that die in order that when they're raised up, the only way you can explain it is that's God. That's God. If you've ever wondered why there are things in your life that have died, and it's hard, and I realize it's hard, but hear me when I say this, sometimes when things die, it's the exact moment God wants it in order to raise them up again. And just like with Jesus, there were people that were counting him out. But what they didn't realize was that as they were counting him out, Satan himself was counting him out. They didn't realize that he was coming back. There are people who are counting you out. There are people that have counted me out. They're counting us out. They've written our obituary. For some of you, you think you can't ever come back from where you were. Let me just tell you, I had a, I'm going to tell the story. I decided I was going to tell the story. Some of you may be aware that we were, 
we were negotiating here these last few weeks with a guy who wanted to purchase the land out there and he gave us an offer and he was he was telling me certain things and wanting to do certain things and when the offer finally came in it was it was so absolutely low i i knew it was going to come in low and so i prepared myself not even to be offended just because i knew where i am and i was saying humble yourself kevin just humble yourself but let me just tell you i came to the conclusion as i received this offer that it wasn't really about wanting to do right it was really about just wanting to rob somebody because he was convinced our obituary had been written he was convinced that church is dead that church won't go anywhere that church has had its day its glory days are long gone that place is dead and he was simply trying to pick the bones counting us out Counting me out. I mean, I got this revelation. I felt like it was sort of like the soldiers gambling for Christ's robe. Why he ain't going to need it? Why will he need his robe? He's dead. He's not going anywhere. We're sealing him in a grave. We're putting guards in front of it. He ain't going anywhere. We're writing Christ's obituary. Yeah, it's finished all right. It is over, never to be heard from again. They just didn't realize that God is in the business of resurrections. Resurrections. Soldiers just wanted to pick stuff off of Christ. And that's what people do. They just want to pick stuff off. But what they didn't count on was resurrection. People counted Jesus out, but they were foolish because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And if we are in him, then Paul says it. He says this, if the same spirit that raised up Christ from the dead, it now lives in your mortal body, mortal body, not my spiritual body, my mortal body. We have resurrection power surging inside of us. Why are you yelling? Because I'm hoping yelling will blast that out of you and me. Hear me when I say this and I'm on Facebook and I'm going to be on YouTube and I'm announcing it to the world. And if my good friend that tried to pick off the property is living and listening out there on John's Island, I want you to hear this clearly. Legacy will come back. We will arise. We will arise. Some may be like Peter and find that hard to believe. But I can assure you we're going to be raised from the dead. And let me tell you what God's going to start doing. He's going to start rolling away stones. He's going to start folding grave clothes because we're going to spring from our tomb. Listen, it's not going to be a relaunch. I'm not even talking relaunch. I'm talking resurrection. I've decided that I want to see a resurrection. I want to be a part of a resurrection. His resurrection is the linchpin to our resurrection. And on that resurrection morning, everyone, listen to this, everyone but a couple of women ran away from the tomb, and the only reason those women came to the tomb was to complete the burial. Now, this is interesting because because maybe they shouldn't have been completing the burial because all of them had heard the prophecies concerning what Jesus would do in his resurrection. So, so they maybe shouldn't have been coming to complete the burial, but at least give them credit, they were at least moving that direction. I understand why people do what people do, and I, I love people, I really do. 
But people have run from our death here at Legacy. Not everyone. I realize there's reasons. There's a thousand reasons. Heck, I've even been discouraged. I'm not going to deny that. But something has to happen inside of you like happened in me in Monroe, North Carolina. Much like Peter, no one has to believe that anything transformational happened, but I know what happened. I know what happened right there. I am going to watch. I just, there's something that God dropped in me. Every now and then God will do this. He will drop something in me that gives me like the spirit of a bulldog. It's, it's like, it's like, it's, it's a, have you ever, ever had a dog that gets a hold of a towel and you can just, you can just shake it around and then after a while you can just pick it up and he'll, he'll just hold onto that towel with the feet off the ground. Every now and then, you got to get like that. You grab hold of something. And, and, and I've just decided I, I'm, I'm going to watch the resurrection power manifest. And all of you are invited to watch it as well. Now, I suspect, just knowing how these things work, some will, some might not. But this much I do know. It only takes one with resurrection power at work on the inside to change the whole landscape. Now, I want to bring it down to you. What has died in your life? Some of you here today may have felt like you've had a destiny or a future and it's died. Maybe you feel like there were some promises that you really wanted to see and you thought that were God and, and right now they're either dead or they're dying. I mean, you fill in the blank. What would you say right now in your life has died? And maybe it's died to such a degree that you just sort of checked it off your mind. You've rolled the stone over it. You put nice grave clothes on it. You tended to it well. You don't understand everything. You've got some questions, but, you know, it's dead. It's gone. And, and I accept that. And some of you have things in your life. It could be, again, areas of resource and finance and relationship and ministry and it could be anything, marriages, it could be anything, just one of a hundred different things it could be. And you would say, it has died. I want you to, just for a moment, run to that tomb and to begin to look at it and understand at this moment that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead can raise up what has died in your life. But the question is, you got to anticipate and believe and say, Lord, I'm, I'm believing every word that you've said. It's the linchpin. The linchpin to everything is the resurrection. The resurrection. Would you stand with me, please?